Welcome to a slice of orange. I'm Jody Balma. Cheyenne Hunt is my guest today. She's a candidate for Congress in the 45th district, mostly in Orange County, a little slice of Los Angeles with Cerritos in the mix with North Orange County, Placentia, Brea, Fullerton, Buena Park. It swings over west to pick up Cerritos and then all the way down to Fountain Valley in South Orange County. Michelle Steele is the incumbent. Uh, this is going to be one of the most competitive races in the nation to determine the control of the House of Representatives. Biden won the district in 2020, and Democrats have a five-point edge over Republicans in registration numbers. Obviously, the incumbent has a huge advantage um, just in name recognition and fundraising. The March election will determine who faces Michelle Steele in November, and there are four Democrats vying for the honor. Cheyenne Hunt is here to talk about her campaign and why she hopes to be on your November ballot. I'm happy to introduce Cheyenne Hunt, candidate for Congress. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me, Jody. Absolutely. So you're running uh, for Congress, Congressional House District 45, which covers a lot of Orange County, starting in North County with Placentia and Brea, swinging west, picking up a little bit of Los Angeles County with Cerritos, and then swinging all the way down to Fountain Valley in South Orange County. Um, that has got to make it really challenging to campaign. That's a lot of territory, a lot of people. It is. It's a lot of territory, a lot of people, a lot of really diverse folks, uh, economically, different cultural backgrounds. And so we are really having to work double time to make sure that we're speaking to everybody. We're getting into the community as much as we can. No one's getting left out and, you know, using every tool that we have in our tool belt to be able to do that, whether it's, you know, volunteers on the ground, Knocking on doors uh, and digital communication is a big one for me. I'm lucky enough to have that as an asset. And so being able to reach voters organically through social media content as well. And just another way to really get the message out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and with our top two primary election rules, um, to the, the March election, there, there are five candidates on the ballot and the top two advanced to November. And so we're assuming that incumbent Michelle Steele is likely to win. So essentially, even though it's a not a Democratic primary, you're competing against the other three Democrats on the ballot. Um, and, and so let's start just with your bio and why you're running for Congress, why you want to be uh, on the November ballot. Yeah. So I'm running for Congress really to carry forward a legacy that was started generations before me. You know, I was raised by my single mother and her single mother. Uh, my mom and grandmother were the descendants of Syrian refugees who came to this country really seeking that quintessential American dream, you know, a better life uh, for themselves and their families. And I was lucky enough to really be the beneficiary of that hard work and that immigrant story. I was the first in my family to be able to go to college. I went on to law school. And from that point on, I've been really committed to trying to open the same doors for others that my family, it took three generations for them to be able to open for me. And that's too long. It's just too long and it's too hard for folks in this country. And it's getting harder to be able to access that path to progress that we're supposed to be so proud of, right? This idea that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and achieve that American dream. But if there's no real opportunity there, then, you know, what is the, what's the crux of this country? Where's the hope? And so I have really fought kind of my whole educational and professional career to find ways to open those doors more easily into a wider swath of folks. You know, I worked in the United Nations uh, and wanted to really expand the application of human rights law to the United States. 
uh, and our cities and our county government and our national government. I worked uh, for Senator Amy Klobuchar as her youngest ever law clerk in the Senate Judiciary Committee and went on to help uh, be a part of the team to construct the impeachment case against President Trump, the first impeachment, uh, which was historic and definitely informed, you know, a lot of my urgency right now, you know, to really see the the state of democracy uh, so embattled was something that really pushed me to say, okay, we're really at a now or never type of situation for, you know, democracy. It's fragile, it's important, and we have to jump in and protect it. And then, you know, I went on to uh, draft legislation and fight to get it passed in my uh, role as a progressive advocate on Capitol Hill, uh, and even advise the Biden White House on a number of issue areas, including technology policy and, uh, you know, a free and fair economy that works for working people. And now I'm, I'm happy to be back in the community here doing the grassroots organizing that I started doing. You know, that was how this whole thing started. Defending domestic violence survivors in the Orange County courts was how I got my start. A very full circle moment for me growing up with domestic violence to be able to get back into the community and really, you know, start there. And so it's it feels like a full circle moment for me to be back in this community now, running to unseat an, an incumbent who is, you know, not serving her constituency. She's serving the corporate lobbyists that line her pockets. And I'm really committed to making sure that, you know, we can flip this seat and get it in alignment with, you know, the folks that live here and the things that keep them up at night. They deserve somebody advocating for that. And so as the only person running in this primary that has any experience on federal policy, any experience drafting federal legislation, fighting to get it passed and going through the, the machinations of government that it requires to be able to be an effective representative, I'm really proud to say not only would I be the first Gen Z woman in Congress and that I am the youngest person in this race, but I'm also the most qualified and it's possible to be the youngest woman in the room and also be the most qualified person for the job. Absolutely. And, and I think, um, you know, it, your your election in November would bring down the median age in, in the House of Representatives. Um, the, the Constitution says 25 is the minimum age for a reason, you know, that that's the age at which, and we have so little representation of Gen Z. Um, too too often, the media still thinks that millennials are the young people. And you know, I was talking to a former student who is one of the oldest millennials at, at 44 years old, and he's like, "So, um, am I middle age or am I still a child?" <laughs> you know, right. at, at some point, we have to update our impression of um, that that millennials are now entering their mid to late 40s uh, right. in the next election cycle. So this race is highly competitive, obviously. Um, it's on lots of races to watch nationwide uh, as one of the, the seats that the Democratic Party could pick up. So many of our representative uh, uh, of our districts are so incredibly safe for one party or another that there aren't a lot of competitive seats. Um, and, and looking at the registration numbers, there are more registered Democrats in this district than Republicans. 38% of the constituents are Democrats, um, a large number of NPP, uh, you know, 24% don't belong to either the Democratic or Republican Party. So this, this could be picked up. However, incumbents have a huge advantage. And Michelle Steele won the seat in 2022 by five points. So if you're on the November ballot, how would you beat the incumbent? Yeah, I think that's a great question because there's this perception I've noticed in Orange County politics of Michelle Steele 
as uh, this kind of unbeatable force. And I think that we really are doing ourselves a disservice and disempowering our uh, our own organizing ability when we look at her that way, because she is truly really vulnerable. Like, take a look at the field, right? She barely won. And this is a Biden plus six district. President Biden won this last cycle by six points. There was a, a really strong rejection of the MAGA extremist brand of radical Republican politics by this district. And Michelle Steele has strategically really hidden herself and her record because those are her buddies. That is who she aligns with and caucuses with in the House of Representatives. But she wants to appear moderate to the folks in this district because she knows that's the only way that she's electable. Well, now she's being exposed. You know, the New York Times just ran a piece a few days ago covering the fact that she has flip-flopped on the issue of abortion, saying that she supports uh, basic you know, exceptions in a national ban for things like rape, incest, and life of the mother. And yet she's out there supporting legislation that doesn't even include those very, very basic exceptions for women. And she's getting caught for being so extreme. And so, you know, I think that really having a candidate like me, somebody that's got a national platform, like I've been able to create in the national media, on social media, that has the experience in the comfort level talking about federal policy, calling out the hypocrisy and really taking the fight to her is what it's going to take to flip this district. But she is a lot more vulnerable than people give her credit for and being able to you know, call that out and really call her what she is, which is a radical extremist, is going to be an important part. Yeah, and I was really surprised in 2022 how many people had the impression because her campaign was telling people that she was a moderate on abortion mm -hmm. as she was co-authoring the Life Begins at Conception bill. Right. And, and that disconnect, I think, is really difficult. And with the loss of local media, with, you know, the, the Orange County Register covering such a large um, area, 3.2 million people in Orange County, just not being able to call out the, those the, those instances and examples of hypocrisy, um, I think it is important that the candidate who runs against Michelle Steele is prepared to do that. Yeah. And I would like to add to, you know, specifically on that, that New York Times piece, they, and like you pointed out with the, the loss of local media, the people who are able to, when we are getting investment in, you know, these, uh, these races and coverage that's really digging into the records, Right now, it's mostly being done by, uh, you know, national media, folks who aren't here on the ground. And that leads that's that's got its own kind of problematic uh, issues with it as well. Like the New York Times covered this flip flop by Michelle Steele. And, you know, they decided that they were only going to reach out to one candidate in this race for comment. They skipped over the two women who have been running for the seat for almost a year that are right. of reproductive age and called one of my opponents who then gave a half-baked quote about that quote abortion stuff. You know, where right. this is really something where the candidate that takes on Michelle Steele has to have the experience with these policies and a deep personal understanding of how this works, how to advocate effectively because you're not going to win over a voter by talking about quote abortion stuff. People, this is this is an issue of life and death for women across the country, and it needs to it deserves that kind of respect and deference. And so I'm really passionate about making sure that we continue to, you know, use 
my platform that I've been able to create as a candidate and on social media to, to call this out. But it's also the onus is on the media to make sure that they're getting a full perspective and that, you know, the people who are being platformed on these issues are people who are qualified and who are, you know, personally impacted to have an issue like this and to choose to go to one male candidate who's been in the race for, you know, a quarter of the time that, you know, the two of us have been is, is crazy. That is a, uh, you know, a really sexist choice to platform, you know, one, one person. And, uh, it, it has a real effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, the, the loss of local media, I think is responsible for George Santos. You know, yeah. if voters had, had been exposed to his lies that they would never have voted for him. And so I think that it's really all tied together. Um, and, and we do need candidates. We need young people. We need women who really understand how policy affects real people's lives. You know, the New York Times uh, had an investigation about um, pharmacies handing over prescription records to law enforcement without a, re- a, a warrant. And when I first read it, I'm like, how in the world does HIPAA not cover that? The idea that you know, my doctor, my daughter's doctor won't give me information about her medical information, rightly so, because she is an adult. But but there's a loophole because the lawmakers who wrote HIPAA, the, 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 the privacy or health information, didn't envision that a, an attorney general in Texas would be contacting CVS to find out medical information. That is a red flag alert for women, and I'm not sure that that the median age of 58 in Congress is going to see that as an emergency. No, and they, I don't think they understand the full extent of it either. As someone with a background in tech policy, you know, I was working on legislation after the fall of Roe related to the fact that Google is still, uh, you know, tracking our location in states where abortion has been, uh, you know, attacked. And they are collecting data showing that women are going to reproductive health clinics and then selling that data to third parties freely in states like Texas, where there is that bounty law where you can, you know, literally stalk women to try and criminalize or at least subject them to civil penalties. The fact that they are seeking out reproductive health care that's happening, you know, third party apps are tracking our location and selling that data. And that's going to have really serious implications and people don't realize the loopholes in HIPAA that you can, you know, go to an online doctor and see that really long list of terms and conditions, check a box and have waived your HIPAA rights. And now that data is right. sold to Amazon or who knows where. Who and knows? That, yeah, who knows? It's it's really, really scary. And so especially to have, you know, a, a field of Congress right now that not only doesn't seem to understand the urgency of the war on reproductive rights, but the 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 new frontier that it's being fought on, which is the technological age and the way that we're being preyed on from from every angle is really, really scary. Absolutely. And and it's just impossible. You know, I I know there were a lot of articles and a lot of social media advice of, you know, delete your period tracking app. That's that's not enough. No, there's so much information that we don't even know is being collected on us. And so it's really crucial that we have representatives writing laws that understand this. And, and, and as you mentioned, you worked on Capitol Hill on these issues that, uh, you know, I, I love your quote, that policy is your love language. Uh, there's so many universes just in legislation. And I think when we don't have people who understand these issues, 
you know, we're relying on the, the, the clerks that are advising them, the interns that are advising them. We need representatives who are well-informed. Yeah, absolutely. And people don't realize that because if you have a representative that doesn't come from this background, they're going to be making decisions based off of the people who have their ear. And in a system like ours, where money and politics is so, uh, you know, inextricably intertwined, the people that have their ear most of the time on issues that they're not familiar with are going to be the corporate lobbyists that come in and promise contributions for the opportunity to, you know, inform the member. I saw it happen on Capitol Hill. Uh, it's it's pretty problematic. You know, we, we just saw it with the two big tech bills that we were trying to get through uh, the right. Senate. And they were bipartisan and there was no reason for those bills to not make it through. It was really basic protections for, you know, our app markets and to protect our data and to make sure that, you know, our uh, we had competition and innovation in, in the technology markets. And instead, you know, these bills at Apple, Meta, the, all of these tech companies spent unprecedented amounts of money, hundreds right. of millions dollars on lobbyists to go in there and get in the ear of Congress and inform them on issues that they don't understand. And it stops progress. And so it is imperative that we have folks that have an understanding of these legislative issues and that background, because then they can think for themselves. They can actually be informed. Correct. Right. So one problem that we're facing is, is that young voters, I, I think that we, League of Women Voters, the state of California, has done an excellent job getting young people to register to vote. They're the largest age group, but they don't show up and vote. Right. And so we have failed young people in civic education and civic engagement by not really making them understand how powerful they are with their vote, but also to understand this really complicated ballot that is far beyond just who the president is. Um, and, And so... How are you finding that as you campaign, connecting with young voters? Yeah, you know, it's a civic education issue in that they don't understand the power of their vote. But I think larger than that, it's more so uh, a symptom of the larger issue that we have one of the least effective bodies of Congress right now of all time. This is, you know, paralleled by you know, the Congress right after the Great Depression. We have gotten so little done in a time where people are really struggling to make ends meet, especially young people, to struggling to find hope in an economy where they're going to be saddled with student loan debt, probably, you know, past midlife, where 30% of my generation is unlikely to ever be able to own a home These things that are really quintessential to being able to build wealth, to build a life, to climb that ladder of social progress, all feel out of reach. And you put on top of that democratic backsliding and a climate crisis that is gone unaddressed that we are inheriting that will impact our quality of life Mm -hmm. in this lifetime. That is a heck of a cocktail to put on young people and say, all right, now go engage in the system business as usual. There's not a whole lot of hope there. And so I think that in speaking to young voters, you know, it's it's really imperative that they understand uh, and that it is acknowledged that the status quo is broken, that there mm-hmm. is something that is inherently wrong with business as usual, that that approach to this moment in history where we find ourselves is, you know, only going to result in more of the same, which is what has gotten them to the point where they are completely checked out. 
And so it's speaking to that urgency. And I've watched I've watched it happen. Crowds of young people come alive when they get the sense that someone gets it. Someone understands, you know, that they are they are scared and they're looking for hope. And so I think it's really speaking to that, too, to to help them, you know, understand that their involvement could actually mean change. Absolutely. Yeah. On on the first day of my classes, I, you know, have the students brainstorm of it, it, we look at voter turnout and, you know, it, in the November uh, 2022 election, 69 percent of the votes were cast by those over 50 yep. in the state of California. And so I say, like, what if we flip that? What if young voters turned out in the same number as their registration and we brainstorm about what policy legislation would change and it's climate change, it's the national debt, it's student loan debt, it's gun control, it's abortion rights, it's affordable housing, it's homelessness, it's all of those things. And yeah, as you as you said, like this do-nothing Congress passed 27 bills in total in 2023. Oh. And, and, and one of them was, you know, commissioning a coin, a commemorative coin for the Marine Corps. That, that's <laughs> great, but that's not exactly going to be on the list of things that young voters want and need. And it is, the world is on fire and, you know, Congress is, I don't know, picking up the fiddle. They are. And we have our our specific member, Michelle Steele, is one of the worst uh, in that particular regard. She is not somebody that really gets legislation done at all. Mm -hmm. Her record is not, is one of obstruction, not progress. And if you see, uh, you know, her, her press on, you know, the work that she's done, her, one of her crown jewels, one of her crown jewels of legislative achievement is bringing sand to the beaches of Orange County, like decorative sand, which again, you know, for coastal erosion purposes, if we're talking about environmentalism, sure, except, you know, she's in the the the, the pocket of the fossil fuel lobby. So clearly this is not manifested out of some will to protect the environment. And there are no beaches in California's 45th district. <laughs> So, you know, I think for young people really looking at uh, what can government do for us and how can it really change my life when you've got a member that's bringing sand to the beaches of her highest dollar donors and doing literally nothing to deliver for the working families of California's 45th district. It's hard to feel like there's something there for you. And getting a member that's actually, you know, committed to this work, that's done the 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 grassroots all the way to the top of the halls of power, that whole grind, I think, is going to be monumental. Yeah. So so let's talk about what you've learned in in the campaign as, as we end this. Of what advice would you have? What what have you learned from this for young women who are interested in running for office? People will tell you to wait your turn. People will tell you why you think that this is, you know, the space for you and you haven't paid your dues and you haven't, you know, climbed the ladder. I was recently in an interview where someone asked me why I had the audacity to think that Congress was the right place for me to start uh, for as a Gen Z woman, which, you know, I then pointed out that we have a Gen Z man in Congress who didn't hold lower office first. And, you know, he's not getting asked that question. So I would say to young women that, you know, you should anticipate that that's part of the journey. There is a certain level of, you know, internalized misogyny in the culture that also exists even within democratic politics. And what I did not expect that I have learned is that that gets compounded 
uh, with ageism in a way where young women are so often disregarded as the least relevant and informed people uh, mm-hmm. by definition when, you know, we when we actually show up and continue to make people uncomfortable with our presence and stand on our resumes, stand on your experience, stand on the mm-hmm. fact that you have a right to be there and you have something to say, uh, you know, mountains start to move. And we went from, you know, being disregarded as, uh, you know, the campaign for a TikTok influencer, which was, right. you know, definitely something based in sexist stereotypes when there are male candidates with far more followers than I have online. Um, yeah. Well, and, and and really successful way to communicate if that's where the voters are, if that's yeah. where young people are. No, I, I wouldn't even know of Representative Jeff Jackson, but yeah. he has so effectively used the medium to communicate. And, you know, he's a, a millennial and uh, and I, I wouldn't know a representative from North Carolina necessarily if I wasn't seeing his real. Now I'm seeing his reels, you know. Yeah. A few weeks later on Facebook and Instagram, because I am not Gen Z or millennial, but but I think it's what medium you're comfortable using to to be where the voters are. Okay. And I have I've seen that ageist and sexist dismissal of your campaign and others um, as if you're not you know practicing law, as if you're not a lawyer, as if you haven't worked on Capitol Hill, as if you don't have experience, just to be dismissed as a TikTok influencer. Um, where what you what the content that you are uh, uh, putting out is is policy based, it's content based, it's political. It's not you know pictures of you and avocado toast. Right, right. Well, that's the thing too is you don't see the coverage of Jeff Jackson as you know TikTok influence. No, no viral sensation uh, maybe, and you know uh, political like rising star in politics, Jeff Jackson. Right, uh, but for me and you know the stereotypes of young women and that I'm an influencer as if I'm out there selling products and, you know, doing whatever behavior they want to attribute to it. But it's just a way of it. When, when you boil down a young woman into one single salacious stereotype, it's a sign that, that they have been made uncomfortable by my presence. And, you know, I get it. I definitely was not, uh, jumping into this race to have the same old conversations. I am really proud to be pushing the boundaries on uh, a number of different issues, whether it's, you know, working on gun safety, a really ambitious uh, economic platform for working folks and to try and really lower the cost of living and check corporate greed that's gotten out of control that we're all paying the price for. Uh, and, And I know that that comes with you know, it's, it's specific brand of backlash. But what I would say to young women is we have power in numbers. Um, and I have, uh, been so lucky to have found some great allies along this journey, some young folks who, uh, you know, see what we're trying to do and, and stand in solidarity with us, some endorsers like voters of tomorrow and mm-hmm. for us. And we, Every single time one of us tries to walk this path, it gets easier for the next one. Did I intend to be the first and the only Gen Z woman running for Congress in the entire country? No, absolutely not. I never imagined in a million years that if I was going to do it, I would be the only one. But I, you know, it's one of those things where I get it. The, The systemic barriers to entry 
four young women are high. You know, it is uh-huh. it is a serious boys club out here. It is a, a path that is not what particularly welcoming, but sometimes, you know, we're we're in a situation where again, when I get asked, why now? And why do you think that this is the place for you? And shouldn't you wait your turn? We can't afford to wait. Young people and young women in particular, we are, we woke up one morning and had fewer rights than our mothers and grandmothers had. That's a reality that we have that no one else in this country has. Right. We woke up one morning and we're, we're second class citizens with fewer rights over our bodies than my grandmother had. That is insane. And, you know, we're, we're really walking into a future here where we're facing existential threats to our life, our safety, our independence, our livelihood. And so as much as it may make people uncomfortable, stand up and speak up anyway. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I think that that's really inspiring for wherever young women want to get involved, whether it's, you know, just running for class president. We we see so often um, that female candidates will wait their turn or not run if somebody else, you know, not wanting to to, to have that competition. And, and I'm so inspired by young women who are getting in the race and running and 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 really holding their ground. And and it, I think it's really inspiring to the, the next generation, Gen Alpha, who is watching all of this. And, and it's just going to be expected that women are on the ballot and, and running against one another and, and for what they need uh, in policy and in politics. Yeah, I, I hope that's the case. You know, I hope that it becomes something that it's not an extra barrier. Yeah, I would love to see that. So thank you very much. Um, I I really appreciate it. And um, we will see what happens on March 5th. Thank you so much, Jody. 